56. Today we continue through uh, the Bible from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. We're cruising through 66 books, one book each Sunday. And this morning we're ready to study the seventh book, the book of Judges. So let's dive right into the structure. How does the book of Judges fit? into the overall structure of the Old Testament. Well, as we've learned, the Old Testament consists of three major types of books, 17 historical books, the five books of law and the 12 books of history, and then five poetical books, and then 17 prophetical books, the five major and the 12 minor prophets. Judges, then, is the seventh historical book and the second of 12 books of Israel's history in the Promised Land. Now, looking at the Old Testament from a chronological viewpoint, we still have the three major types of books, historical, poetical, and prophetical. Judges is the fifth of 11 books that give us the actual Old Testament storyline. So what's the structure of the book of Judges itself? Well, the title of the book, Judges, is fitting because the storyline in the book centers on those different military and political leaders who governed Israel in the period before they had any kings. The Hebrew title, Shofetim, meaning judges or rulers, the root word Shofet, not only carries with it the idea of maintaining justice and settling disputes, but it also carries with it the idea of liberating or delivering. And the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses the Greek word kratai, judges, as the title. Now, although the, the author of Judges is anonymous, Bible scholars agree that Samuel is the most likely choice. Jewish tradition contained in the Talmud actually attributes authorship to Samuel, and certainly he was a very crucial link between the period of the judges and the period of the kings. The book of Judges covers some four centuries in time, from the time of Joshua's death until just before the birth of Samuel. All of it takes place in the New Promised Land, although different parts of the land, as some of the stories of these judges actually overlap, because not all of them ruled all of the land, but only sections of it. As you can see in the chart here and in your lesson notes, there are 13 judges named throughout the book of Judges. In addition to more judges, Eli and Samuel are named in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. And technically speaking, in his later years, Samuel actually named his two sons, Joel and Abijah, as judges in 1 Samuel 8. But their terms were so short-lived and corrupt (laughs) that scholars seldom even mention them at all, especially since Samuel appointed Saul as the first king in the very next verses in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So you got that long list there. We won't take the time to read through that. You can look that up on your own later if you want. But as we learned in the video, six of these judges played major roles in the book. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And of these, the last four, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, along with Samuel later in the book of Samuel, are mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The book ends, as you've already noted in the video, with these words, Judges 21 and verse 25. Let's read these out loud together. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, we'll come back to that in a bit. But with that overall structure in mind then, let's move on to the story. 
And once again, we're indebted to the Bible Project for their excellent overview of the storyline of Judges in that video clip that we watched to begin today's lesson. And once again, I've reproduced that chart for you in the inside pages of your lesson notes for your own further review and study. So how do we sum, sum up the story of the book of Judges? In a word, failure. Or as the chart notes, you'll see it says Israel's total failure. I mean, how many times had God warned the Israelites through Moses and Joshua to drive out the Canaanite nations totally and completely? Here's just a couple of examples. Numbers 33. Uh, This is Moses' words. Drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish their high places. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you live. And then Joshua repeats basically the same thing in Joshua 23. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations before you. Instead, they'll become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land. Now those commands by Moses and Joshua were repeated again and again and again, you understand, throughout the previous books that we've just studied. And how did Israel do? In obeying God's clear instructions? Failure. (laughs) Total failure. It shows up, in fact, in the very first chapter of Judges. Earlier I had you turn there to Judges chapter 1. So I want you to follow along now as I read a few selected verses that you see up here on the screen. We're going to pick it up with verse 19. Judges chapter 1. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. By the way, let me stop there for just a minute. Does that make any difference to God? No. No. Okay, just want to make sure you understand that. Verse 21. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Go down to verse 27. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Ilbium, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did the Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Helba or Afek or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemash or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. So how did Israel do? <laughs> when it came to driving out these pagan nations, they failed. Total failure. So flip over to Judges chapter 2 with me. I want to look at a few verses here as well, and you'll see how bad their failure was and what exactly happened 
as God had indeed predicted would happen. Judges chapter 2, we pick it up with verse 10. After that whole generation, by the way, that's the first generation that entered the promised land. Okay, that's Joshua. That's all the people that crossed the uh, Jordan River into the land. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, they had died. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In His anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as He had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from their ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways." Now with all that setting in mind, then basically the storyline of Judges chapters 3 through 16 is simply a downward spiral of sin. Seven, actually, cycles of sin that went something like this, as you see up on the chart here. Basically, they would experience rest, they would experience peace, and in that peace they became comfortable and they forgot God and they began then to worship other gods and to intermarry with these people that they had not driven out before them. That led them to sin and to rebellion, and in their sin and rebellion they turned their backs completely upon God, and God then would send retribution, He would punish them, and He would let the enemies around them begin to take control over them and then they would cry out in their sin and in their in their, their oppression and they would say god please save us and and god in their repentance would hear their prayer and he would raise up a judge who would come and then restore them back to their place of prominence and then they would receive this era of peace and rest once again and guess what? The cycle would happen all over again and again and again and again seven times till it got worse and worse and worse. The downward spiral of sin goes from pretty good to okay to bad to worse, as it says on the chart. And finally, in Judges 17-21, through 21, the people of Israel were so corrupt that four times the text tells us the same thing. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, it's interesting that... that uh, The New King James Version says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The good news says everyone did whatever they pleased. The message paraphrases it. People just did whatever they felt like doing. It's chaos. Idolatry, immorality, and violence were rampant. And as was pointed out on the chart, Israel lost their identity completely as God's holy people. They became no different than the Canaanites that they were supposed to drive out. Failure. It's a sad book. It's a book about total failure. 
That's the story of Judges. Which brings us then to the Savior. Each Sunday as we focus on the 66 books of the Bible, one of our priorities is to point out where and how Jesus is to be found in the narrative of that book. Now please remember, there's one grand central theme, a single scarlet thread, if you will, that runs all the way through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation through God's Son. Jesus Christ. And so here in Judges, we want to stop, look, and listen for the Savior. Where and how does Jesus Christ appear in the narrative of the book of Judges? Well, while there is no direct reference to the Messiah in Judges, there are types or foreshadows, if you will, of Christ portrayed for us in the Judges themselves. Each Judge was a Savior, a Lord, And thus the judges foreshadow the role of Jesus as the Savior and Lord of us, His people. And certainly that oft-repeated phrase, in those days Israel had no king, cries out, let's get a righteous king. And guess who that righteous king is with a capital K? Jesus. And although most of these judges were rulers, essentially performing the role of a king, one was also a prophet, Samuel, and another was a priest, Eli. And so all three offices, prophet, priest, and king, are portrayed by these judges as a type of Christ who is, with a capital P and K, our prophet, priest, and king. That's the Savior. All that brings us to our final point, which is the sense. This is where I want to dwell most of our time today. As we wrap up every lesson, I want to offer the sense of each of the books of the Bible. In other words, what practical take-home lessons can we apply to our daily lives from this book? In today's case, what instructions or applications can we glean from the book of Judges? Well, the book of Judges is full of many well-known Bible stories. They're kind of gory and bloody. But some of my favorites are the story of Ehud, who was a left-handed, yay, left-handed, left-handed judge who killed Eglon, the king of Moab, who was so fat that when he stuck his sword into his stomach with his left hand, because the guy was looking at his right hand, he kind of snuck up on him, and he put the sword in, he was so fat, his fat just swallowed up the sword, and Ehud could not even get the sword back out of the man, that's kind of gory, but that's one of my favorite stories. (laughs) Then there's the story of Jael, who killed Sisera by driving a tent peg through his temple, while he slept. Another gory story. There's the story of Gideon who put out a fleece before God, not once but twice, to determine God's will. And then at God's command reduced his army to just 300 men. And he routed the Midians with trumpets and torches and clay jars. There's the sad story of Jephthah who foolishly made a vow to sacrifice whatever came out of the door of his house first when he returned from defeating the Ammonites, and guess what? It was his daughter. There's the story of Samson. You probably know that one the best. His killing a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, and then all of his long-haired escapades with this prostitute Delilah, and his ultimate destruction of Dagon's temple where he took his own life and the lives of over 3,000 Philistines all at the same time by pushing out the columns and the building collapsed in on top of them. Great stories. (laughs) 
Again, the, the book of Judges is full of so many fascinating stories. But for our purposes today, I want to zero in on just two key lessons that I believe are relevant for application to our lives today. Two key words. The first word is extermination. Extermination. As we've already discovered, the book of Judges is all about failure. Total failure. And why did the Israelites fail? What led them into this downward spiral of sin? The answer is obvious. They failed to completely drive out the Canaanites before they settled the land. Again, Judges 1 tells us they were unable to drive the people from the plains. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites. Manasseh did not drive out the people. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites, nor did Asher drive out. Neither did Naphtali drive out. (laughs) Simply put, Israel failed to exterminate these pagan nations with all of their immorality and idolatry. And then in chapter 2, the angel of the Lord Jesus appears to them and says, you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares for you. And that's exactly what the rest of the book of Judges is all about. Because Israel did not drive out the Canaanites, all those ites, Because they were content to compromise God's call to be His holy people, these pagan people among them did indeed become traps and snares for them, just as God said that they would. And this led to their downward spirals of sin and ultimately to their utter failure. And so the book ends, everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did whatever they pleased. People just did whatever they felt like doing. Chaos. I think there's a lesson here for us about the extermination of sin in our lives. Let me just ask you this question. What is your attitude toward the sin in your life today? Do you really want to exterminate it totally and completely? Or are you content to compromise God's call to holiness? Is it your desire to eradicate any and all sin in your life? Or are you okay, I'm just sinning a little bit. I'm not doing too bad. Lest there be any doubt, the Bible calls us to extermination. Romans chapter 6. Shall we go on sinning? By no means, Paul says. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin. Ephesians 5, verse 3. We've got to read this one out loud together. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Don't miss that phrase. There must not be even a hint. Not even a hint of sin in our lives. Maybe you've heard the story of the wise mother who was trying to teach her children a lesson about 
contamination and compromise and toleration. She caught them watching a questionable movie on TV and they defended themselves saying, Mom, there's only a little language and violence and sex. It's not a big deal. Get over it. She quietly went out to the kitchen and cooked up a fresh uh, batch of brownies. And as she served them, she explained, I only added a little dog poop to the recipe. <laughs> Just a little. Oh, no. It's not, it's nothing. Go ahead, enjoy yourselves. Eat these brownies. <laughs> Get the point? Jesus himself told us that we must take drastic measures against sin. In Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, he purposefully overstated this to get across his point, I think. He said, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. In other words, if and when we sin, this is serious business. We must deal with it. We can't ignore it. We can't compromise it. Extermination. We must drive the sin completely out of our lives and nothing short of extermination will do. If we do not eradicate every trace of sin, we are bound to see history repeat itself and we will experience failure just as the Israelites did. Paul warned us to learn from their mistakes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. The question is, are we listening? Are, are we learning <laughs> as we journey through these books from Israel's mistakes? So first, the sense of judges is about extermination. I hope and pray you'll think about that one some more in the week to come. The second lesson that I see here is a lesson about extinction. Extinction. There's a verse we read earlier that I want us to look at again. Judges 2 and verse 10. It says, After that whole generation the first generation of Israelites who entered the Promised Land. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. How sad. This generation of Israelites who entered the Promised Land had promised Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey Him. And remember, we talked last week, they made all these memorial stones so that they would not forget and that they would pass it on to their children. And here, one generation later, they failed. Total failure. They broke their covenant promise and another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. I think there's a lesson here for us about the extinction of our faith. Simply stated, our faith, Christianity, the church, is only one generation away from extinction. If we don't 
pass along the heritage of our faith to our children and grandchildren, if we don't leave a spiritual legacy for the next generations, then Christianity, the church, will cease to exist. Folks, that's why we keep emphasizing the need for teachers and leaders in children's church and Sunday school here at Springville Naz. And that's why we're starting this young adult class next Sunday morning. We simply cannot do as the Israelites did. Failure is not an option. We must invest our best resources toward teaching and reaching these next generations. Let me talk about Springville School for just a moment. I do not believe that it is just coincidence that we happen to meet directly across from the school. Our facilities are here on this corner for a reason. God has placed us here so that we can make an eternal difference in the lives of the children and their parents and guardians, the teachers and the staff, everyone who is in any way involved with the school. And we need to be more intentional about reaching out to Connie and to the school, volunteering our time and our efforts. We need to look into building a larger multi-purpose facility down here on our property. Not just because we're outgrowing our worship auditorium on Sundays, but because we could partner with the school in offering that facility for their use on Monday through Friday. We need to offer after-school homework tutoring as a ministry to the children. We need to offer sports camps and athletic programs for the children and youth of our community. As it says on our banner right out here on the lawn, I don't know if you ever read it, but it says that we're praying for these children and for their parents regularly and fervently. And we must do so. I could go on and on dreaming of what we could do for Springville School and for all the kids who live in these foothills around us. Did you know that 85% of those who make a commitment to Christ as the Savior and Lord of their life do so before the age of 14? 85% of all those who become Christians make that commitment in their life before they reach the age of 14. But did you also know that 59% of those who make commitments as children abandon their faith between the ages of 15 and 19. Just let that sink in for a minute. Folks, these statistics call us to action. What's God's heart for children, by the way? Jesus Himself put it this way, Matthew 18 and verse 14. Let's read this one out loud together. Your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. That's God's heart. Earlier in the same chapter, Matthew 18 and verse 6, Jesus said, If you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Yeah, that kind of gives us an idea of what God thinks about little ones. Kids occupy a very special place in God's heart, and they must occupy a very special place in our heart as well. We simply cannot do as the Israelites did. Extinction is not an option. We must invest our best resources toward reaching and teaching the next generations. And so second, the sense of judges 
is about extinction. I'm sure there are many other lessons that we could and should apply to our lives from the book of Judges, but for today, I've chosen just these two, and I think they are so very important. Extermination and extinction. That's the sense of the book of Judges. Route 66, as we're cruising through these 66 books of the Bible, today we have focused on the book of Judges, the structure, the story, the Savior, and the sense. We'll continue our study next Sunday with the book of Ruth. There are only four chapters in the book of Ruth, so if you read a chapter every other day, you will read through the entire book before we gather together next Sunday. And it is a blessed story. If you have never read the story of Ruth from beginning to end, you need to read it this coming week because it is a, it is a great love story, a great love story in a greater way than just you know the mushy kind of love story. It, we're going to talk about it next week. It, it, the Kingsman Redeemer idea and all this that happens in the book of Ruth is amazing. So take the time to read and study it before we get together next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word that is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates right to the heart. And that's what it's done today. Amazing that we could learn such... Incredible lessons from a book that is so much about failure. A gory and bloody book. A book that I'm sure the nation of Israel would just like to throw out and forget it even happened. But it did, and it did for a reason. So teach us these lessons today. First about the sin that's in our own lives. That we can't be content with just being okay. We can't compromise and say, well, it's just a little sin. It's just just something I'm hiding away. It's my deal. We can't do that, God. We've got to exterminate it. We've got to eradicate it. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to gouge it out. We've got to cut it off. We've got to do whatever it takes to exterminate that sin in our lives. Give us that attitude the same attitude you have towards sin. And about extinction, God, remind us once again of the importance of reaching this next generation. These kids are so incredibly important. These young families, we must, we simply must pass the faith along to them. And so I pray that here at Springville Naz, you would raise up leaders, you would raise up teachers for our children and youth and young adult ministries, that these areas that have just begun to grow would grow even larger, that, that we would be able to reach out and see young people and children come to know Jesus. I pray for the school right across the street. God, that we would have inroads into that school to make a difference for eternity in the lives of these kids and their parents. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful in that regard, I pray. And so teach us now, I pray, and help us to apply these to our lives however is needed in our own situations, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.